Welcome to Sports Pages, a new podcast from Joe, which digs into the stories behind some of the greatest sports books ever written. I'm Simon Clancy, and each week I'll be interviewing the authors of those books to find out about the proposal, the process, and what it felt like to have that first copy in their hands. My guest this week is the American journalist and writer Bill Barrett, a former staff writer at The New Yorker, winner of the Guggenheim Fellowship, and literary laureate of the San Francisco Public Library. His first book, Laughing in the Hills, is a true sporting classic, a season-long account of life at a California racetrack, which appears in almost all of the greatest sports books lists, including those at Esquire, Sports Illustrated, and The New York Times. Bill, welcome to Sports Pages. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Glad to be here. Before we get to your writing, you grew up on Long Island. You were a high school basketball and baseball star. So at what point did you rule out a future playing sport rather than one in writing? Well, uh, my senior year in baseball, I batted uh, 0.91. That's not Not great. (laughs) And then basketball, the basketball, I I was 5'7". I actually just wrote a piece about this. You know, they were sort of heartbreaking. And and my parents actually took me to a a growth specialist to see if they could give me hormones, you know, at which point I said, no, I think I'd rather not play basketball. Then you spent a year in Florence studying Renaissance art and then in Biafra for the Peace Corps. I wonder what did you discover about yourself in Italy and in West Africa that set you up for the future? I grew up in a very ordinary, purpose-built suburb. When I, we moved in, there wasn't even a library. But, I, you know, I was always interested in, in, um, in travel. Getting to Florence, it was like cashing a bet that people could really live that way. Great museums that you could go to, that you could eat well. The wine was fine. It was a whole new way of being. And like a lot of American writers, particularly post-World War II, you know, and a lot of the guys who had been in the Army stayed on, it was romantic, and I, and I fell for it. And the, the, the experience of being in Nigeria during the Biafran War was the, the, the absolute opposite of that. It was to see that there were forces at work in the world that were so destructive that they're almost impossible to resist. So those are, those are kind of the two sides of existence for me. They coexist, and, and they are often at battle with one another. To be thrust into another culture like that when you're a young person Nigeria was particularly difficult because I really liked the teaching I was doing. I liked the people I was working with, the Igbo people. And to see this this war starting, you know, like was seeing a great swath come across the country, you know, and we knew a lot more about, about war, having had World War II and the Korean War in my lifetime. And we knew what was going to happen. And, and the, the people were still very naive in terms of their thought about war was, you know, we'll get, a, we'll get our machetes and we'll be ready when they come. It was an awful, awful experience. Books run in the family, don't they? Your father was president of a paperback publishing house, Ace Books, and, and your mother steeped you in literature from, from an early age, didn't she? Yeah, she was the... Uh, mothers tend to make writers and poets, I think. You know, she, she, you, your father may be encouraging, but your mother's the one when you write something. She, she, Mom, will you listen to this? She'll actually sit there and listen, you know. And not only that, she'll probably tell you it's really good. So you keep going back for more, you know. And you got into publishing as a, a stock boy for a Haight-Ashbury book distributor before becoming book salesman, agent, publicist, and then finally publisher of a, I hope you don't mind me saying, a sort of fairly obscure paperback on medicine. <laughs> How big was the itch to write your own work? Oh, all that time I was, you know, I mean, while I was going through that process, I understand it after the fact that I, I was really sort of demystifying the whole process of publishing and writing, you know, because I was intimidated. I didn't know a writer and, and where I grew up there, you know, there was there were no artists or anything like that. So it seemed presumptive of me to think that maybe I could do that. But by taking all these little nips at the corners of the literary world, you know, I, I began to see how things work. And I was writing away and I, and I, I 
finished the first novel, which like most was autobiographical, it was set in Nigeria, no interest on the part of publishers, but on the basis of that, I was able to get an agent. She said, I think you can write and I'd like to take you on. So, so that was very encouraging. And that was when I said, well, it's time I have to be serious. I'm going to quit all these jobs that I take for a year or two and move out to the country and live cheaply and, and really try to, to get a book in print. You had five rejected novels. I wonder, can you remember the titles even, even this oh, far yeah, I can, forward? I can remember. Yes, I can remember. Well, that was the part. You see, getting an agent, I was so naive. I thought, well, I have an agent in New York and she thinks I can write. So it'll only take me a year. I'll write the next novel. I'm sure that will sell, but it didn't sell. Mm. Uh, the only thing I give my credit for was sort of hard work. I mean, I was not thrown by the rejection. And I knew a lot of people who were writing who were, frankly, more talented, but they couldn't take it, you know, the difficulties that that kind of life entails. My problem, I know in retrospect, that I would get caught up in, in uh, imagining and, and playing with words and you kind of fall in love with your own brilliance, you know, and that's a really dangerous thing. You know, it's like Samuel Johnson, you got to kill your darlings, you know. I had too many darlings, and I really wasn't aware enough of readers. But I kept on. Then I wrote a, a, another one that was about an ecological disaster, you know, a, a chemical company and a guy who had been an activist who rolls over and does PR and then everything goes wrong, which is not a, a book that most publishers are going to be interested in. So so the long and short of it, after all those rejections and, and living in this, uh, we were living in the wine country of California in a in a trailer that I thought we'd only be there for a year. Now this is four years into it, you know, and we're broke and we'd had a lot of bad luck. But anyway, I, I the light went off and, and on, the bulb went off in my head and, and I thought, well, all these editors keep saying, oh, we really like your writing and I can't wait to see the next book. And I thought, well, if they mm. like the writing, maybe you ought to try a book of nonfiction because then I won't have to make up the story. The story would be given to me. So that was the genesis of Laughing in the Hills. That decision to, to shift to nonfiction essentially changed your life, didn't it? Oh, it did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it was very, very useful, The um, ha having the going to a racetrack, spending 10 weeks going to the track every day there was racing, getting there, you know, early in the morning for the workouts, being a, a fly on the wall, gave me, you know, notebook after notebook so that when I was done, I didn't have to make anything up. I didn't have to, I had to structure everything, but the narrative was right there in front of me. You know, there's the, the season begins and the season ends. So it really reeled in my tendency to fall for my own brilliance. And, and I, I had to deal with yeah. it. I couldn't make anything up. It's important, I think, to set the stage for the book. You had sort of no money, really no job. You'd written these five novels, all of which had been rejected. Your wife had suffered two miscarriages and then had surgery for what was thought to be a brain tumour. And then tragically, your mother and your mother-in-law had died of cancer within a matter of weeks. And you were just about surviving in a rented mobile home, sort of 70 miles north of San Francisco, feeling, as you say, knee-deep in ruin. I suppose a racetrack would seem the unlikeliest of cathedrals for inspiration in your time of despair. Well, it, it came about because um, when my mother was dying, I would fly to Long Island whenever I could. Uh, I, sometimes I would, I would get a magazine assignment or whatever, and I'd get there maybe every couple of months. And there was really nothing to do. It was clear that she, in spite of the treatment, she was not going to make it. And the whole family was kind of frozen in a way. And uh, you don't know what to do. There's only so much you can do in terms of caretaking. And, you know, after you wash all the dishes and you, you, you clean the house and... I just happened to be walking one day and I went by an off-track betting parlor, you know, which is a, a, a bookie joint, basically. And uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to stop in. You know, I had a sort of a vague interest in racing, 
because I grew up near Roosevelt Raceway, the old harness track, and we used to sneak in there yeah. when we were high school kids. So I thought I'll just go in there, and uh, and I made a two dollar bet on something, and um, came home, and they were they showed the replay of the races on TV at like you know after the card had ended, say five thirty or six in the evening, and I said, would anybody mind if I, I I made this little bet, and would anybody mind if I I just put on the racing show? And they said, no, no, it'd be interesting. So I, I put it on, and they all gathered around, including my mother to watch the race, you know, and hoping my horse would win and all of this. So for that brief, whatever, two minutes, three minutes, all thoughts about the cancer, you know, everything went away. Everything was suspended. And we were all kind of just united in this meditative space, really. So when I went for my walk the next day, I think the horse lost. But <laughs> my father said, well, you put a bet down for me. And my brother said, how about one for me? And my mother said, and she had hated gambling. And and really read me the riot act when she found out I was sneaking into the Roosevelt Raceway. She said, would you put down a bet for me? So that became the routine, you know, whenever I was home, we'd do that. And it, it became a nice yeah. little ritual and, and allowed us to forget. And as I say in the book, it, it was like a little spark of life in the midst of the cancer. You're right. My father, a lavish spender, but every race, double, triple, and exactors, overextended and incautious, whilst my brother played the hunches, dark horses from his dreams, obliterator, 20 on the nose. My mother would lean forward in her chair, her big reading glasses dwarfing her eyes, making them look childlike and act excited if a horse was in contention. She had a funny way of exaggerating her response, pressing a fist to her sternum. I thought she heard in the announcer's call a little pulse of life at the heart of the cancer very much a sort of family affair, a, a kind of very critical point of your family's life, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And it was a way to be to be together. You know, you're together all the time, but you're, you're not wanting to deal with the cancer. So the fact that you're all there and it, it takes you outside of, you know, the overriding trouble is it was it was a kind of a gift. So mm. when I got back to California after my mother had died, uh, I came back for the funeral and I was thinking about this book of nonfiction. I was also reading um, Renaissance Philosophy, and there's a notion that one way to understand the big world is to take a look at the little world. And I thought, well, the racetrack is really sort of a microcosm. It's confined. The people sort of live there in a, in a unique and uh, very individual way. And putting that together with the idea that something was going on there, something about the animals too, and the kind of conjoining of the, of the human and the animal fascinated me. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll put together a proposal and I'll write a, um, a sample chapter and let's see what happens. And um, to my amazement, I, I got a contract for very, very little money. <laughs> but it was uh, the fact that I knew the book would be published if it were good enough. It also contributed to being harder on myself. I can't mess around anymore. You know, I, this, is, mm. this is for real. So no more, you know, you don't make anything up. You have to really put in the effort because you may never write another book. And not only that, nobody may even read this, but you got to make it as good as you can. What did your wife say when you announced you were moving to a motel 60 miles away to bet on horse racing? <laughs> That's a good question. She, she was actually, she was, it was very, very important to me. Uh, you know, we, we had a long marriage, but she was tremendously supportive and it meant a lot to me. She, she had just had her surgery when we moved, so we were pretty brave, you know, looking back. It was isolated. It was on a 14-acre estate. We didn't know anybody in town. I think she was a little shocked when she saw that I rented a trailer. But the fact of the matter was it was beautifully situated. It, it looked out on, on a river, and from the little deck that we had, you could just look out over vineyards, and it was uh, really like being in a, in a, in a, a painting from, from the Renaissance, a beautiful, beautiful country. And I think it was good because we needed time to heal, 
And there was really none, none of the distractions of the city. We both liked that very much. And she eventually, when she got better, she found a job. So she, you know, she, she had something to do. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think it ran its course. You know, when, when, I, when the book came out and, and it was picked up by The New Yorker, that gave us options that we didn't have. And we were pretty ready to leave by then. I bet. So you're, you're holed up at a cheap motel a few miles from the Golden Gate Fields racetrack. Quite apart from the book, were you sure that the track could help you make sense of life during this sort of very difficult time for you? Well, I, I wasn't so much, you know. I mean, I, I, knew, I knew I had a hunch that I would find something, but I didn't know what it was. And, and um, it helped me to get through and beyond, you know. I mean, I, I think there's a line in there. There's a, I talk about hope, you know, that hope suddenly enters the equation. It's part of the racetrack, you know, because there's another line where, you know, we're all optimists in the morning. You know, op- morning yeah. is the most optimistic time at the track. You know, you go watch the workouts. Everybody feels good. The sun's shining. So I'm going to have a great day today. You know, the trainer's saying, yeah, yeah I, I, this horse is fit. This horse is going to do it. You know, and the jockey's saying, I have a great ride in the fourth, you know. And then, of course, it all comes crumbling. Most of it comes crumbling. But uh, yeah, I think that that I say somewhere in the book, I, yeah, I felt that I had cashed a bet, you know, that it had enlivened me. And, and, and because it is a very lively atmosphere and the, the horses are, are just so wonderful to be mm. around. You're kind of ennobled by them. Yeah. So this first day then, first day at Golden Gate Fields Racetrack, $500, the daily racing form, a beginner's knowledge of handicapping and, uh, and one or two books on the Renaissance. What, what were your expectations going in? <laughs> I had no idea. You know, I, I was, I'll tell you, it's very lucky because I didn't know all that much about racing and I had never been on the backside. So people didn't know what to make of me. I didn't come in like one of the reporters from the, from the newspaper saying, you know, asking questions about, you know, who's going to run, who's going to run in the stakes on Saturday. I just hung out, you know, I mean, I'd go around the barns and I'd sit there and they ignored me. It's a very closed culture, uh, at least in American tracks. Mm. Uh, and they don't particularly like outsiders around. And there's good reason for that, <laughs> you know, if you look at the state of racing in America now. And particularly at a cheaper track like Golden Gate Fields, there's all kinds of hijinks going on, you know. So anybody yeah. who, who who is knowledgeable or investigative, uh, you know, I wouldn't have got anywhere. But I was just like this sort of weird guy, you know. <laughs> he just keeps coming back, you know. He's, they finally, they sort of get curious, you know, like, why are you back here again, you know? What can I do for you, if anything? And, and then they start talking, you know. How soon were you hooked on the racing drug? That kind of subculture of stable staff and hot walkers and jockeys and trainers is, is a fascinating, beautiful world, isn't it? I find it so, you know, particularly in the morning, because you're watching the horses work, everybody's hanging out and everybody, they talk about their families, they talk about, you know, who who did what last night. It's very enriching. And, if, and the other thing is, everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, that's one of the, the beauties of that world. You get up and you, and you go and, and they also, you're around people who by and large love to do what they're doing. And that makes a difference too. Sure, there's lots of, there's injuries, there's defeats, people lose money, they do stupid things, but they love being a trainer and they love being a jockey and and they even Mm. love being a groom, you know? It's nice to be around people like that. They have a sort of very fatalistic outlook too. Kind of like if you think it's going to go well, well, buddy, you better look behind you, you know? Do you remember your first winner? You know, I don't. Uh, I remember the first winner that I, when, when I was in high school at, at Roosevelt Raceway okay. was, a, was a horse named Rhythm Lad. I had gone to a you know, high school party and a guy who had graduated was now working at a, uh, a sort of diner 
next to Roosevelt Raceway, where the, the guys who drove the sulkies, you know, the rug, would come in and have coffee or have a sandwich. And instead of tipping him with money, they'd say, hey, I got a horse for you, Eddie. So I was at this party, and Eddie, Eddie said, I said, how are you doing? He said, fine, I'm working at this place, and uh, I'm making money on these bets. These guys give me tips. And I said, geez, I'd love to have a bet. He said, okay, rhythm lad. He said, give me six bucks. I'll play it across the board. I had no idea what across the board was. But I waited for our copy of the, of the Newsday, which was the Long Island paper, to be delivered. And I opened it that afternoon, and sure enough, Rhythm Lad had won. You know, it paid something like $15. You know, I thought, this is great. I'm going to call Eddie and get Fantastic. that money right away. Yeah. So I called Eddie, and Eddie says, oh, geez, he said, I parlayed it for you. I thought you'd want to parlay it. I said, I don't know what a parlay is. <laughs> so anyway, he had done that, yeah. and I ended up making about 80 bucks out of it. So I was thrilled. Great. The beauty I've always felt of the book is in the characters that you meet at the track, from the man, as you write, with rat breath washing his dentures, to Arnold Walker, the frequenter of the turf club, and Richard Labar, the racetrack gypsy, uh, John Gibson, the voice of Golden Gate Fields, Headley, the trainer, etc. For those that haven't read the book, just give us a quick pricey of some of those characters and some of the people that you found just so intriguing? Well, Headley was, uh, you know, he's kind of the main character and uh, his barn was the one where I spent the most time. And he, he came from a racing family. His, his brother um, was a big time trainer in Southern California. Uh, I think the father might have trained too. And Gary was interesting because he, he, he wrestled with being a trainer, being in the track world. And he would leave and, and try to do something else, but it kind of always pulled him back. His horses were, were not of the top caliber, but he was, he was pretty good with them and, and pretty um, willing to take the time. And he had a horse called Pichi, like P-I-C-H-I, that had just, he had just got. And the horse had been kind of knocked around and, and possibly, you know, beaten a bit somewhere else. And so it was, you know, you wouldn't think this horse is ever going to win. And sure, the first time the horse ran... Mm. I think it was eighth out of eight. So I followed the course of Peachy through the season. And it truly was thrilling because Peachy finally won a race. They found, you know, a race that was where the caliber of the opposition was so low that she was able to do it. And uh, and Headley had a wonderful groom who was uh, really like a, a guy off the bow twin, his name was. He, he was like a guy I, I said i'd seen his face before in, in uh, dorothea lang photos you know he's he looks like he blew in from yeah. the dust bowl and that's all he ever did was to be a, a groom he had knew nothing else he dreamed of being a trainer and he would he, he would call himself headley's assistant trainer but he could never get it together to do the you know the paperwork to actually become a, a full trainer and he wouldn't have had the, the personality, you know, to schmooze with owners and all of that. Yeah. But he was a br brilliant at taking care of horses. They all had good stories if you could pry it out of them, you know. People don't realize how much, when you get people going, they're going to tell you. Sometimes you say, yeah. please, please don't tell me that. I don't want to hear any more, you know. It's, so you end up with an awful lot of material once, once you get their trust. And I was going to say, trust is, is hugely important, isn't it? But especially in that field. And I just wondered when you when you felt like you'd stopped feeling like an outsider? Oh, I don't think I ever did. Oh, uh, really? No, I don't think so. You know, I, 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 I don't ever remember turning up at somebody's barn and somebody saying, hi, Bill, you know, they were friendly enough, but I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't socialize with them afterwards. No, I would say uh, I was more tolerated than embraced, you know, but they all went and bought the book, so. <laughs> okay. Good. People never before seen in, in the, the bookstores of Berkeley 
you know, were suddenly coming in and asking for the book. They don't read books, you know. So most often when you do the kind of work when I'm writing nonfiction, people understand, you know, that, oh, it's going to be a book and it's going to be in the bookstore. But I don't think it for nine out of 10 people there really computed that anything was going to happen, that it would actually come out and it was going to be between covers and you could buy it in a bookstore. Because it's not a culture that's particularly literate, you know. You touched on it briefly earlier, but there was something, you found something very special in the horses themselves, these kind of beautiful beasts that were there that everybody came to see every day. There's something special about a racehorse and a racehorse in motion, isn't there? Oh, there is, absolutely. There's Being around, I think there's a point toward the end of the book when I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with the, with the whole experience. And I say something like that, we were, we were starved for contact with our animal other, meaning, you know, in, in the kind of lives we live, that I live in Dublin, people have dogs, you know, but you, there's, it's that sort of magnified at the track, you know, you're dealing with bigger, superior animals and, and you, you, um, you just feel privileged to be around them. You know, they're intelligent, they're not all intelligent. And the kind of bonds that form between the trainer, the jockey, and the horse and the groom, everybody feels good about it, you know, because this, this creature mm. has deigned to allow you to work with it, to participate in its life, you know? Yeah. You use the words chaos and order quite a lot, and nowhere more so are the words chaos and order so apt than at the racetrack, are they? Oh, I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, everything appears to be orderly, you know. You watch the horses come out of the paddock, and they're there. You know, they're, there's number one, there's number two, there's number three. Then they get in the gate, you know, and, the, the, God, anything can happen. Yeah, that's probably a good metaphor for life. You know, we all like to think, oh, isn't life orderly? Yeah. You know, I mean, this, this is great. You know, and underneath it, there's a seething, horrible things. I and, mean, you know, there's a virus suddenly, you know, I mean, it's, it's, and it's chaos. Yeah. Were you going back to the motel every night to write, or did you wait until the season was over and then start to put things down? I don't like to carry a notebook, you know, and sit there and write down when, when people are talking, unless it's somebody who's in a position of authority who might be upset if I didn't have that, you know, to show that I was being a responsible performer, you know, like the track officials, people like that. But no, I would never, uh, never write anything. I'd go immediately, if I was at the track and I had an interesting conversation, I'd just duck into the grandstand and, and write everything right away from memory. And the okay. same thing at the end of the day, you go back to the motel, sort through, oh, I should make a note of that, you know, and I'd write it from memory and the dialogue from memory. But if you're paying, if you're paying attention, you know, it's like making a documentary film. You wander around for the day and say seven out of the 10 exchanges you have are worthless, but three, you get a nice piece of footage, you know? Yeah. So you get back to the motel and you start, that's okay, let's write that one down because that's going to go in. Yeah. And when did you feel like you had something special? With regards to the book, when did you think, okay, the material I'm gathering here, the people I'm meeting, the experiences I'm having, if I can nail this, this could be really, really good. When I went into the season, when the 10 weeks were up, I knew I had a lot of material and I knew that it was really good. And like you say, they're wonderful okay. characters. You know, there were things that I worried about, like the story of Peachy, you know, because it, it seems like a cliche, you know, this injured horse, you know, who's had a hard time, goes to a, a trainer who's maybe not the best in the business and, and then finally wins a race and everybody cheers. I thought that's too corny, but I put it in anyway. And, and when I'd meet people, they'd say, God, the story about Peachy was wonderful. <laughs> you know, The only problem I had was I got home, put my notes in order and I said, okay, I'm going to start writing. Sure enough, I started making stuff up, you know, and I remember I wrote two or three days of work and I just had to take myself in hand and say, you can't do that. You know, this is, you're going to blow it if you start doing that again. 
You have to sit there, tell yeah. it as it happened. Why not say what happened, you know, which is a great line. You returned home, I read, with $450 of your, of your original 500 That's pretty amazing going for somebody who spent 10 weeks at a racetrack. Yeah. Well, I'm a very cautious, uh, you know, because I never really? had any money. <laughs> yeah. No, people would be surprised that, uh, I mean, I still get, I, when I, when I have a, you know, when I bet the races here, I'm still better shaped now than I was then, but I am still a, a terribly cautious. But I think if, if you've been poor for four or five years, you never get over it. <laughs> you know, you think sooner or later, they're going to pull the rug, you know, they're going to cancel that check, you know, it's not going to get here. But I tell people, but I, I, I've been incautious with my life. You know, I, I tend to make very bold moves without too much worry. I'm not very brave with, at the betting window. You said you obviously went after the season was over, you had 10 weeks of material. How long did it take you to write it? And did you go back home to write it or did you stay on in the motel and do it? No, no, I was back uh, back at the trailer. It was a year, but that's, okay. that's, all I, that's all I did. I did. I worked every day, you know, Sundays included. And I worked long days because it, I, it was hard. I mean, I to do justice to the material. But there, you know, there comes a point in when you're writing any book when it just clicks and you, you think, okay, it's going to be all right. And you lose some of the anxiety and the writing is never easy, but it becomes easier because you know what fits and what doesn't. When did that so, yeah, come? Year, probably halfway through the book. And in terms of the first time you showed somebody, the first time somebody read something and the first sort of feedback that you got for it, when did that happen and, and what was the reaction? I was supposed to get like another bit of the advance after I completed half the book, and I, I sent it to my editor. This was the days when you actually packed up the manuscript and mailed it to New York. And I didn't hear anything from her for six weeks, and I was too scared wow. to, to call her up. And I sent, I just fell into a deep depression. You know, you were hard pressed to, you know, I'd been heading for the, the the Valley Bar, you know, at three in the afternoon, you know, and saying this is not good, <laughs> you know, this is not good. And then finally, I got a letter from her, you know, um, not even a phone call. And she, she yeah. was absolutely thrilled. She said, what do you want to write next? The New York phone book? We'll take anything. You know, so I thought, well, wow, that's, that's pretty good. You know, none of this, well, you, you know, this has to be changed and that has to be changed. And so that, you know, then, then I, I felt a bit more confident. My goal was just to, to actually make it good enough to see it into print. And I thought, you know, that's great because yeah. that was always my goal to just get at least one book into print. We talked about life-changing moments, the shift to nonfiction, the letter from, from your agent. The third, I suppose, was when the editor of The New Yorker, William Sean, telephoned you at home to, to buy the first serial rights. Can you remember that phone call? What was that like? What happened? <laughs> yeah, I, I can, Give me a sort of a... I remember, I remember me, it very well. Well, uh, you know, the, the book has gone back to the publisher and to my agent, and she had a, um, an assistant who dealt with periodicals who read it and thought, well, you know, this is the sort of thing that uh, the kind of our New Yorker runs pieces like this. So she sent it over there with really no hope because they, they hardly ever took anything from outside the shop. You know, it's all by staff writers. And it was read, you know, from the, from the bottom editor up and it finally had landed on Sean's desk, William Sean's desk. And um, Sean then read the book and called me in the trailer. Um, I had my waders on and my fishing rod in my hand. I was on my way to the river and my wife answered the phone and she said, it's Mr. William Sean of the New Yorker. And it was great. So I got on and uh, here I am talking to Sean and my waiters, you know, and if you've been rejected for years and years, you know, suddenly I'm on the other side of the, of the world, you know, and this guy is mm. praising my writing and telling me how much he thinks of it. And then he, uh, 
my agent said that they were going to pay me $2,500. And oh, I thought, that's good. I mean, that's more than I ever made. It's about as much as I'm making on the book for the advance. And then Sean said, well, we're going to run it in two parts and we'll pay you a minimum of $25,000. And I said, could wow. you say that again? And what, my, <laughs> what happened was that they had told my, the assistant, we'll be paying him twenty five, dollars and they'd never sold anything to the New Yorker. So she thought it was $2,500. So Sean says, no, it'd be tw two parts, $25,000. So I said, uh, I have to get a, a beer. <laughs> so he laughed. <laughs> he said, I'd have one with you, you know, but he, he actually didn't drink. That was phenomenal, you know. I mean, really, it was just, um, if you told me it as a story, I wouldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> it was your whole story would be hard to believe, you know, if you take it from right back to the beginning in terms of all the things that were going on in your life before you wrote the book to the point where William Sean phones up and offers you $25,000 yeah. for the rights to the serialization. It's almost like a film script in itself. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people tried to make it, you know, but the, uh, I mean, a lot of people, I, I met people and I was working in L.A. a couple of years ago on a, on a, a, a racing show for HBO and, and I, I met... Uh, a couple of people who said, you know, I, I, I remember that book and I remember trying to break it down and turn it into a movie. Like actually the guy who did Bull Durham, you know, the baseball movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he's, yeah. He said, uh, you know, I've, I've tried, I, you know, we worked on this. We just couldn't figure out a way to sell it to them. But yeah, it yeah. is, a, it is a, a, bit, a bit of a Cinderella story. I was very happy to be Cinderella for, you know, I accept the role. Absolutely. The shoe fits. The shoe definitely fits. It's always felt to me there's something different about horse racing and boxing, I suppose, when it comes to sports writing. I think of George Kimball's The Hurt Business and Norman Mailer's The Fight when it comes to boxing. And, mm -hmm. and I take W.C. Hines's Death of a Racehorse, that kind of classic newspaper writing in less than a thousand words mm -hmm. on the death of a hugely promising horse called Airlift in his first ever race and, and his subsequent death. Would you agree that, that those two sports perhaps stand out above a baseball or a you know golf or, or those sorts of things because of the people that are involved and the stories that seem to come from that? Well, uh, yeah, I, th I think there's um, there's implicitly more drama than there is uh, in, in baseball. Baseball's a you know, very slow-evolving sort of game. I mean, there are good writers about it, but I, I think you're right. There's something about, uh, well, you look at the, uh, the fight is the center, but you're walking all around it, and it gives you opportunities, and, and you can't get better characters. You know than the track and and boxing. I mean, I've I've written a bit about boxing, and they're great fun to hang out with. Mm. Cover a big fight. Um, I wrote about Mike Tyson's fight with um, you know the ninety one second fight. You know with uh, Michael Spinks for the New Yorker, and that was a bit troublesome. You know because the fight only lasted ninety one seconds. So how do I turn this into a piece? You know, I got to meet Donald Trump out of that piece. Okay, was, is that a good thing? Uh, well, it was a long time. He was yeah he was. Um, <laughs> He was running, yeah, same guy. He was running it down. But but the thing is, he 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 was, he was very personable. He didn't have that that sort of brutal aspect that he has now. He was not interested in me as a writer, but he was interested in getting the Trump name into the New Yorker. So I was I was ushered into his into the Trump Tower to his office, and and he just struck me as a guy like a guy from Queens, you know, the kind of kind of the guys I grew up with. Certainly wouldn't be bookish. Um, it was great to use in the piece because the uh, Trump's main concern was he um, he had invited Frank Sinatra, you know, and that that was like the big casino to get Frank to come. And I remember yeah. like uh, the fight was on uh, it was probably pay for it was on ESPN, and I had just happened to be down in the uh, where they were setting up the ring, and the the ESPN guys were doing their camera checks, and Trump walked in, 
and walked over to a chair right near the ring. And he's looking and he's, he says to the guys, you're going to have to lower the ring. And they look at him and say, well, it's all put up. You know, we got the angle set up. So you're going to have to lower it, Trump says. And the guy said, why do, I, why do I have to do that? He says, because Frank's not going to be able to see. He's too small. He won't be able to see. The sight lines are not good. Lower the ring. <laughs> so they lowered the ring and Sinatra, of course, didn't come. Of course. That's a significantly better story than what happened in the, in the 91 seconds in, in that fight. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've never seen a boxer as scared as Michael Spinks. Tyson was a different animal, wasn't he? Certainly in the early oh, part yeah, of his career. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the book, you write, I had another bourbon and thought how thoroughbreds take us away. When I was in touch with them, I felt every neuron in my body transforming me into a long synapse, a bit of energy blowing apart, all connections are tenuous. I knew what was happening then. I was letting go of sadness, letting go of my mother, living and dying, winning and losing. I sat on the stool, suddenly permeated by all the emotions I'd been blocking out. Nothing abides, no cause for alarm. Did racing and the racetrack save you? It opened a door. You know, it put me back in touch with a lot of emotions. You know, one of the things that can happen when you go through the sort of trauma that that we went through, where it gets so you don't want to pick up the phone when it rings because you're, you're afraid, you know, it's going to be somebody else has just been diagnosed, something else bad happened, you know, and there was never a phone call where something good happened, you know, until Sean. <laughs> and uh, you can kind of freeze up, and I think I did. You know, I felt that I was just, uh, and I eventually had developed, you know, some minor chronic things myself, which are all sort of stress-related. But there came that moment when, there is more to life, you know, there is hope, there is a way out of the tunnel. And I, th I think that's what I was trying to capture in that, you know, in that paragraph, uh, that I came away from the experience renewed, you know, that I, I could go on, that there would be good phone calls, there would be good things happening. And uh, it was a, a blessing, really. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the release of the book. Apologies for, for aging both of us, really. How do you reflect yeah. on, on Laughing in the Hills 40 years on? Well, the fact that we're doing this and, and that, that you found the book, I mean, the book has never been published in England, but whenever I'm in London or when I've lived in London, it, an awful lot of people have read it, you know? So I think anything that, um, you know, Cyril Connolly said, if, you know, book stays in print for 10 years, it's a minor classic, and I'd, I'd settle for that. It's like anything well-made. Um, you go back to books, I mean, the books that I go back to, and, and I, I, you know, you read them differently at different points in your life, but... Uh, the good ones hold up and they're, they're still nourishing in, in the way you want them to be. So if that, if that serves that purpose, if that book does that, and then even in a small way, that I, I'm very pleased. At the start of the decade, for a couple of years, you worked as the lead writer on the HBO series Luck, about horse racing starring Nick Nolte and Dustin Hoffman. And I wonder, when you laid your head on that motel pillow on the evening of your first day at the track, whether you'd ever envisaged that one day you'd be writing scripts for a TV show starring the man who just won the Best Actor at the Oscars in 1979 for his role in Kramer vs. Kramer. No, you know, and I, and it would have been the farthest thing from my mind. The, uh, I had sort of had no interest in it, you know, that... Uh, and I had an agent, but then she would say, you, you should come down here and you could, you could work. And I only got interested really when um, David Milch, the guy who, who was the prime mover behind Luck, who was a, a, an extraordinary racing man, owned horses and had a horse that won the Breeders' Cup and, uh, and gambled with uh, extreme <laughs> incaution, very costly to him too. But he was doing a, uh, a show, um, NYPD Blue. NYPD Blue, yeah. And, and a friend of mine was, was a guy named, uh, talking about boxing, a friend of mine, Leonard Gardner, who wrote Fat City. 
which is a wonderful boxing novel, was working as a staff writer, and I was coming to L.A., and Leonard said, you should come by. David knows you're, you're laughing in the hills, and he'd like to meet you. So I came by, and out of that, David gave me a script assignment. I went home and I wrote the script, and he sort of offered me a job. And at that point, I really was, I, you know, I, I thought, well, I'm, I certainly could use the money, but I, I was in the middle of writing a novel, and I thought, I, do I really want to move to L.A.? And when it happened years later, when Milch got in touch and said, I want to do this racing show and asked me to write a pilot script, I was much more amenable to the, every, every aspect of that, that world. Um, too bad about the show. That didn't, didn't work out. We had a lot of bad luck. Yeah. A long way from a Golden Gate Fields motel to Dustin Hoffman, though. It's a hell of a path. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's wonderful. The thing about that, there are a lot of, very little of what you write gets used, you know, because most, most people who run these shows, they will rewrite it or they'll, you know, just not use much of it. But on the other hand, you, you're paid extremely well. In my case, we ended up with a, in Santa Monica with an apartment a half block from the beach, you know. Suddenly you're living in L.A., you know, you're living this thing that you never thought would happen or particularly wanted to happen, but when you're in the middle of it, it's pretty cool, you know. Absolutely. It's an incredible story and a wonderful book. Bill Barrett, thank you very much indeed for sharing it. Bill's book, Laughing in the Hills, is available online, and there's some beautiful first editions at a very reasonable price as well, and it's well worth its place on those best sports books of all time lists. That's it for Episode 7 of Sports Pages. Don't forget to listen back to last week's show with Anna Crean and her William Hill Book of the Year winner, Night Games, on the dark underbelly of Australian rules football. Thanks again to Bill. I'll be back next Tuesday with another author. See you in seven days' time. 